Upsla Podcast Episode 5, Michael Stahl und Software Architecture. Welcome to the Uppsala Podcast. The Uppsala Podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Uppsala Conference, which takes place in October 2007 in Montreal, Canada. The Uppsala Podcast is co-produced with Software Engineering Radio and Dim Sum Thinking. In this episode, we talk to Michael Stahl about software architecture. At this year's Uppsala Conference, he runs a couple of tutorials, among them high-quality software architecture and architecture refactoring. Here's your host for this episode, Software Engineering Radio's Bernd Kolb. Hi Michael, can you please introduce yourself? Yes, sure I can. Uh, my name is Michael Stahl. I'm with Siemens Corporate Research and Technology. I'm responsible for the f area of distributed systems as well as software architect architecture. And so basically, I'm more or less a researcher and a consultant for Siemens. Okay. At this year's Uppsala conference, um, you have a tutorial which is named High Quality Software Architecture. Can you tell us a bit about software architecture and why it is important? Ah, the general definition of software architecture is something like it's about components or subsystems and the relationships and different viewpoints from which you can define things like behavior or structure and of course all of the guiding principles that help you to define your software architecture. So basically from my viewpoint every system has an architecture of course. Even if you start just programming anything you will get an architecture. But the problem is that this might be acceptable for programs for instance such as small exercise programs or small tools. But As soon as you start to work for larger systems, then you definitely need a systematic approach because without any systematic approach, you cannot expect that all your requirements will be met. And from my viewpoint, even more unfortunately, it turns out to be completely insufficient just considering architecture as an activity in the early phases. So basically, architecture is something which is relevant from my viewpoint for the whole product or solution lifecycle. So, and what is software architecture quality? Well, that's a hard question because there are a lot of different definitions. Um, quality, if you read, for instance, the ISO 9000 definition, is something which is defined as the degree to which a set of characteristics fulfills requirements. Um, I think that this definition, while it is correct, does not really provide you with too much value. I think from my viewpoint, it should be added that quality implies meeting all of the implicit and explicit requirements. And it's also important to note that all of the requirements of all stakeholders need to be met. So, for instance, the users, the development team, the project manager, and all of the other stakeholders. And, of course, from my viewpoint, an implicit requirement, something that is often forgotten, might be something like ICANIT in the user interface, for instance. These things are often not documented, but users definitely expect something like a nice layout, a, a nice user interface. And often you will find requirements such, such as usability, which are explicitly requested, but implicitly something like nice graphical design is 
something users really expect. So basically, that's the reason why, from my viewpoint, it's all about requirements, implicit and explicit requirements. And of course, quality also depends on the kind of application. For instance, if you are a game developer, something like a nice user interface might be very important. But for other kinds of applications, for instance, in the embedded area, other terms of usability might be even more important. Okay. So can you summarize which factors play a role in, in the software architecture quality? From my viewpoint, there are different levels of uh, factors. First of all, from my viewpoint or from an engineering viewpoint, you really need to make sure that the process, the development process itself, supports the design and implementation of a high-quality software system. So you have to start with creating an architecture vision. That means you have to define from the requirements what is the baseline architecture of your system. So what are the most important requirements? What are the most important operational requirements? In which kind of infrastructure does your system live? Is it a distrib distributed system? Is it a concurrent system? All of these things should really drive the baseline architecture of your system. So that's the first point in a process when you're starting to develop a high-quality software architecture. And then, then, of course, you need to have something like an agile process where you can refine and refactor incrementally. So you can use a time box approach in order to cope with quality problems very early from my viewpoint. It should be test-driven, of course, because uh, you will make errors, you, make you will make faults in your team. And that's the reason why test-driven development is much more suitable than the waterfall model, for instance. And, of course, something like doing strategic design before tactical design. First, taking into account all of the important high-priority requirements and then making local uh, design decisions is very important. So don't start with the local things like how to extend or change something, which might be a subsystem. Just start with the more important strategic design. And of course, as an architect in the process, in order to have a high-quality architecture, you also need to enforce the architecture vision. So you cannot just get out of scope at the end of the design phase. You must really make sure that the developers really understand what kind of quality, what kind of architecture you're going to build in order to really teach and educate them to make this kind of quality happen. So that's the first kind of factor. I think the other kind of factor which is important in terms of quality is something like an appropriate architecture principle or to use the right architectural concepts uh, to take it in, a, in another term. First of all, the first thing from my viewpoint, whenever you start an enterprise project, for instance, then you really have to define the infrastructure in which your application will live. So you will have to deal with things like concurrency and distribution. And it's very interesting how often these things are really leading to errors and problems. Because if you are doing multi-threading, for instance, wrong, then the whole then we will have a whole impact on the architecture and on the implementation. For instance, concurrency is something which is really important from the architectural design up to the implementation. So it's really important that from the beginning to take concurrency issues into account and to also take distribution issues into account. Distribution, for instance, by using the right components and service uh, technologies is a very important issue. So, for instance, if you're going to build a service-oriented architecture, then you might have completely 
different perspective than for, than if you are building something completely different like an embedded software system. So that's the important things here. And of course, you also need to consider how to design for operational quality. So for instance, if you have something like scalability or availability, how would you really integrate all of these requirements into your application? How would you inject those requirements? How would you cope with contradictions like uh, if you want to have a platform-independent system and at the same time if you want to have a high-performance system, then these things are really contradicting because being platform-independent mostly involves uh, adding additional wrappers, but performance forces you basically to circumvent these wrappers and to directly address the system. So how can you cope with all of these different requirements and priorities and risks you will encounter in your development project? And the other thing from my viewpoint is then in the next step, after you have dealt with all of these operational qualities, how to design the developmental qualities. So for instance, if some parts of your system should be changeable or manageable, or extendable, for instance, how would you deal with this kind of issues? How would you use the right patterns in order to make sure that your system is flexible enough in terms of what your stakeholders expect? And finally, from my viewpoint, uh, in terms of the architectural principles, you should also take into account all of these configuration issues, like how would you then configure your system? If you have something like a product line, for instance, where you have a lot of different kinds of configuration options, how would you really deal with all of these mess of configuration options? How would you really build your system? How would you build an application on top of a product line? To give you an example. So basically, that's the issues which comes at the last step, configuration issues. And of course, we should also be aware of the role of patterns, because patterns, from my viewpoint, are very important in terms of quality. Patterns are representing kinds of reusable architecture blueprints. And they also represent proven solutions. So in order to reduce quality, it's much better to reuse things which are already proven than to reinvent the wheel again and again. So basically, patterns are really helpful in order to come up with high-quality solutions because they themselves are building on some kind of high-quality solutions. So patterns are, from my viewpoint, one of the basic units of the basic elements of any high-quality software architecture. And finally... Then the third question could be, if you have any system, how would you really find out if the system reveals some kind of architecture quality? So are there any points or any factors or any aspects you could look at your architecture and then define if your architecture has the right kind of quality? So are there any hints uh, from, from this viewpoint that help you defining whether a system offers the right kind of quality or not. And from my viewpoint, there are different elements or different what I call architecture qualities you can find in very high-level and high-quality architectures and software systems, which will imply that your software system really has high quality. For instance, the first thing I would consider is pattern density. So if your developers or your architects are really using high density of patterns, if they're really using the right patterns for the right problems, if they really look into the books, like the Gang of Four book, for instance, and if they don't reinvent the wheel again and again, then from my viewpoint, this high 
pattern density will really help you with high architecture quality. And uh, there are even some research results which are proving that architectures with high pattern density often also reveal, reveal high quality. So this is nothing such as an assumption. It has already been proven in the research community that patterns are really helpful in order to improve quality. Another thing from my viewpoint would be then symmetry, also known as conceptual integrity or orthogonality, for instance. So basically, if, for instance, your architects are using one specific pattern to solve one specific problem and another pattern in another part of your system to solve exactly the same problem, then your system will get not will not, will not be very readable, maintainable or testable, for instance, because they are using different solution concepts for the same problems. So symmetry, using the same kind of solution for the same kind of problems all over your software system really leads to a higher quality. And symmetry is not only... Symmetry in the sense of structural symmetry, but there's also functional symmetry. Because if you're going to implement a system and you will see that there's an open operation, to just give you an example, then you will also expect a closed operation. So for every open operation, there should be a closed operation. And if something like an open operation is available in the implementation, but you won't find any closed operations, then this is often a sign that something is missing in your implementation. So the breaking of symmetry often leads to bad quality. So quality problems or faults can often be related to breaking of symmetry. That's the reason why I consider symmetry as a very important point. Another things which I think really show if an architecture has high quality are things like simplicity or expressiveness. So if your architecture is not simple or is not expressive, you won't be able to really teach other people like developers, for instance, what your architecture really is or of which part it consists of, for instance, what relationships they have. Because if it's not simple enough, then if then it's very complex. So basically, it will have a lot of components with different roles. One component might have different roles. You will have, diff you will have different relationships. So this basically will make your system hard to read, hard to understand, and hard to teach to other people. And that's the reason why I think symmetry, uh, sorry, simplicity and expressiveness are really important here. And uh, there's a very simple test in order to test if your system is really expressive and simple. And basically, this test just uh, comprises of calling a colleague on the phone and explaining the architecture to this colleague. And if it's possible to explain your complete architecture within five minutes without any visual techniques, without PowerPoint slides or any other form of visualization, then from my viewpoint, an architecture is really expressible and simple. But of course, there's a danger with simplicity. A system should not be simplistic. It should not be simpler than, than it's required. So basically, simplicity does not mean uh, to be oversimplistic. And of course, the other point, the fifth point from my viewpoint, if you look at really high quality architecture, they are dealing a lot of, a lot with emergent behavior. So basically, the sum is more than its parts. So you will see that functions or components will provide much more functionality if they are working together. For instance, uh, and a good example for this is the leader followers pattern, where you have a non-deterministic behavior, but where the whole system by introducing some kind of 
emergent behavior will really solve all of the problems uh, in terms of concurrency without having too much uh, redundancy and too much locking and so on. So basically, from my viewpoint, emergent behavior is another good example of how you would detect that an architecture has really a good quality. So that's basically what my understanding of quality is. Okay. So which role do metrics play with respect to software architecture quality? Um, it's very difficult here because from my view, metrics are a very important tool for detecting the possibility of potential problems. But from my viewpoint, they are not often or even not helpful to really detect whether there is a potential problem. So they are just hints. They don't give you a proof that there is a problem in your architecture. And the other problem from my viewpoint is that metrics or some kinds of metrics are not very useful. For instance, what is the value of lines of code in this context? So what would you, uh, you uh, for what kind of reason would you use lines of code in terms of software architecture? And there's even another problem because some metrics might, may even point you to problems even where there are no problems. For instance, if you take, for instance, McCabe's cyclomatic complexity, and if you use an observer configuration with 50 observers, then the McCabe complexity value for the cyclomatic complexity will show you that this kind of application has a high risk and is very complex. And that's from my viewpoint, not the right uh, answer. So basically, metrics have a lot of value, but I think from my viewpoint in software architecture, their value is rather limited. Okay, very interesting. Your second tutorial is called Software Architecture Refactoring. Um, what is the motivation for Software Architecture Refactoring? Okay, my motivation basically was the following, because, of course, I, like many other people, read Martin Fowler's excellent book on refactoring. And this is really, really a smart book, because it really is helpful if you are ever in an agile process, for instance. And if you have to deal with incremental developments, then you will see that uh, the first step in the architectural design will not be the last step. So in each further step, you will have to refactor and you will have to change, you will have to extend your, archi extend your architecture. So from my viewpoint, this kind of re code refactoring, which uh, Martin Fowler has introduced, is very important. But the next step then was, if you remember, Joshua Karieski's book, who brought uh, something like up like refactoring the patterns. And refactoring the patterns got even one step further. It didn't just use the implementation kind of refactoring patterns. It also showed that, for instance, you could use uh, the Gang of Four patterns and refactor pattern uh, solutions which did not use any patterns to solutions that provide such patterns. Basically, it was going one step further in the abstraction la uh, layer. And from my viewpoint, there's one step missing because I think you can even refactor in different kinds of levels, in different kinds of abstractions. And from my viewpoint, only few software engineers know that we could even refactor the software architecture of existing systems. So refactoring from my viewpoint, represents a semantic preserving transformation of any structure or artifact, not just the implementation. Thus, you might even refactor the design of your software architecture. For instance, you could change your UML model, or you might change, for instance, your DSL expression. You, you might change a model, a test, or even a document. So as soon as this kind of change is structure, 
is is structure transforming but semantic uh, uh, conserving then from my viewpoint all of these things are kinds of refactoring so whenever you don't change the semantics but only change the structure, this is a refactoring. It, it is not tightly related at, or tightly coupled to implementation. The problem, of course, was that I did not find too much literature on this kind of issue. So I really tried to find in the web to find some documents and literature on how to refactor software architectures, not only implementations. And I did not really find too much stuff there. So that's the reason why I really got interested in this topic and I had to work on my own material. And basically, I have to be honest, I'm only at the beginning and I'm really far away from what I would consider a complete coverage of this topic. Nonetheless, I think that I really collected some best practices, collected some ideas, some concepts, and which I would like to integrate in the tutorial at the Opsler. And I would really like to le lecture some best practices and properties of software architecture refactoring. But of course, as I said before, this is far from being a complete coverage because there is no existing research from my viewpoint and there's not too much literature in this area. So how does the code refactoring relate to the software architecture refactoring? Uh, from my viewpoint, there are many relationships. So just suppose your architecture has already been implemented and then you will need to commit an architecture refactoring and in, the, in this case you have to commit such, some kind of architecture refactoring. This will also have an impact on the code of course. So whenever the code is already available and you are changing the architecture, this will definitely impact the code. So in the best case you could then apply a code refactoring that restructure the code to resemble the architecture refactoring you have implied on the architecture. So for instance, if you plan to make your applications service-oriented and if you have to extract an interface from your architecture to be available as a web service, then there are, of course, a counterpart in code refactoring helping you to extract interfaces from classes and components the same way that it's possible for a complete subsystem, for instance. So basically, code refactoring and architecture refactoring then go hand in hand. As from my viewpoint, this is in the ideal case, the architecture refactoring might provide something like a microprocess with code refactorings that help implementing the architecture refactoring if the code is already there. Of course, if the code is not there, if architecture refactoring is done in initial phase, like in a baseline architecture design, where no code is available, then of course you won't have to deal with code refactoring too much, but you would at least have to answer developers the question how they should then implement the code refactoring or the architecture refactoring. So basically that's something which is important. But note from my viewpoint, the whole system of refactorings would be useful. For instance, you could have an architecture refactoring or code refactoring. You could also refact test plans, documents, other artifacts. So I think in the future, I'm also expecting guidance in all levels of refactoring, not only for code, not only for architecture. Maybe we will even get a whole system of different kinds of architecturing working closely together. So I think this wraps it up. Um, do you want to say something else? Yes, I'm looking forward to the Uppsala conference, of course, and I'm also looking forward to meet all of these people there, and I hope uh, many of them will also attend the tutorials. Okay, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for listening to the Upsla podcast. If you want to know more about the Upsla conference or if you want to get additional Upsla podcast episodes, visit the conference website at upsla.org. This episode, as well as all the other episodes of the Upsla podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East. <laughs>